Most of you should have gotten a letter or an email or both uh, this week uh, about my decision to accept an offer from the West Virginia Baptist Convention to become the area minister for the Northeast area. Clarksburg Baptist Church is kind of interesting. I, I think Clarksburg Baptist might be the farm club for the West Virginia Baptist Convention because when I go on staff, that means three of the last four pastors at Clarksburg Baptist Church will be on the staff of the West Virginia Baptist Convention. Uh, David Carrico is the uh, executive minister. Max Hill is the area minister for the southeast area, and then I'll be the area minister for the northeast area. But it's an exciting time, and I'm, I'm excited about an opportunity to expand uh, my ministry and to, to work with churches uh, throughout our state, uh, and hopefully to help them to grow and, and to become the communities of faith that God wants them to be. For Clarksburg Baptist Church, it's an exciting time because you can build on what we have accomplished together and move forward with new leadership. So it's, it's going to be an exciting time for all of us. Sometimes a little apprehension involved, but that's only natural, but God God uh, has a great plan, and he's going to work it out through us, so I'm excited about that. Uh, not sure exactly when my last Sunday will be. We're going to work that out with the church council, but it'll be sometime in the next month or so. But just ask for your prayers as I will continue to pray for you. Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7. Uh, beginning in verse 36, and I'm going to do something I, I rarely ever do. I'm going to read the entire scripture at the beginning today. So you can follow along in your Bibles, or it will be on the screen as well. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is the sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith 
has saved you. Go in peace. Everything about this story is scandalous. Everything. Everything about it. A religious leader, Jesus, upstanding guy in the community, invited to a Pharisee's house. And this happens. You see, Jesus was already in trouble because he was always going to parties. And he had this, this kind of reputation of, of eating with sinners. And as if it wasn't bad enough that he was eating a sinner, a woman, a prostitute comes in and does this. Imagine this scene. Imagine the scene in your own home. You invite some upstanding religious leader in your community to your house. And as he or she is sitting there, someone who has a notorious reputation in the community comes in, cries all over your guest's feet, wipes their feet with their hair, kisses your guest's feet, anoints with perfume, and to make matters worse, the guest does not object to what's going on. Now, that was bad in Jesus' time. Actually, one of the worst things about this is the woman had the audacity to unbraid her hair in public. That was a no-no. But let's be honest. If something like this had happened at your house, wouldn't your reaction have been similar to Simon, the Pharisee? I mean, let's be honest. And, and I think the great thing to me about this story is, is when Jesus tells the, the story about the debts being forgiven to, to Simon, the Pharisee, it is impossible if we are honest with ourselves to hear what Jesus says and then to say, you tell him, Jesus, you show him what's right. Because all of us know in our hearts that if this happened at our house, it would be scandalous. We would be embarrassed. We wouldn't know what to do. Because things like this are just not supposed to happen. There are two very distinct attitudes in this story. And the first one, obviously, is, is, is Simon's attitude. Simon, his attitude was that he was a good man and that God was pretty lucky to have him around. I mean, Simon knew everything about religion. He knew everything about the law. He knew everything about theology. He knew everything about temple worship. He knew everything about ethics. He was, he was a good man in, in his own eyes. But he completely misses the point of it all. Because Simon had all these other things, but what he lacked was any consciousness that he had a need in his life. In fact, William Barclay has said that the greatest of sins is to be conscious of no sin. That's why when someone describes themselves as religious, or when somebody will say to me, well, you seem like a, a real religious person, I bristle a little bit. And I'll tell you why. Because the Bible doesn't tell me to be religious. The Bible instructs me to be Christ-like. And the problem I have with the term religion is so many times in Scripture we find religious people like Simon, but they're not very Christ-like. 
And I don't want to become like that. The other thing about uh, someone who considers themselves religious is it's, fair, it's a fairly external thing. It's a fairly prideful thing. And it, and it tends to lead to something that I have accomplished by myself. I have become religious. And that's not what the Bible instructs us to do. But Simon was a religious person, according to his own estimation. But what it does, when we consider ourselves maybe religious, and at least Simon demonstrates it, is there's this idea that we are somehow superior, spiritually superior to everybody else. You know, God, you're lucky to, to have me on your team. You know, I'm, I'm important. I'm, I'm, you're really fortunate, God, that, that I'm around and I'm operating uh, in your church and that I'm doing the things that, that I'm supposed to be doing. God, you should really appreciate what I'm doing. But, but Simon here has the ultimate, I think, spiritual superiority attitude because if you noticed, he actually judges Jesus. Is that the height of arrogance for someone who is religious, is to judge Jesus? He says, look, this man's not a prophet. You know, if, if this man was a prophet, he wouldn't be letting this stuff go on. And a lot of us say, well, you know, I'm not like that. I, I, I'm not like Simon. I don't feel like I am, am spiritually superior to anyone else. But we've all said, I'm glad I'm not like them. You know, some, we pass somebody on the street or, or we meet somebody and, and whether we say it out loud, it, we might at least say it to ourselves sometime. Man, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm better than that. And that's not the attitude that we're supposed to have. Because here's the deal. We tend to put sin in levels. So that someone else's sin is, is way up here, but, you know, but my sin is, is kind of down here. I mean, yeah, I lie a little bit. Yeah, I cheat a little bit on my taxes. Yeah, I gossip a little bit. You know, I, I do this and that and the other. Uh, but man, I'm not up here. I'm not a prostitute. You know, so hey, I'm not like those other people. But see, with God, sin is sin. And, and God doesn't say, okay, well, you know, he's just committing these little sins down here, so he's okay, but this person up here has got these big sins. That's not the way it works. Sin is sin is sin is sin is sin in God's eyes. There's no real bad sin and no innocent sin. Sin is sin in God's eyes, and we need to be careful. The other thing is, is, is we, we tend to, to see ourselves as kind of spiritually beyond other people. You know, we have, we've advanced in our spiritual lives to the point where we are spiritually superior to, to other people. And, and we have this great spiritual insight. And, and God only speaks to me. And when God speaks to me, I speak to other people. And they, and they better listen. But here's the, the thing. We, we need to grow spiritually. But it, it's not good enough just to grow in knowledge if we don't also grow in grace and in humility. Those are characteristics that we need to be careful that are in our growth pattern. And then sometimes we think, well, you know, I, I really don't want to be around other people that are different than I am. 
I don't want to be around people who are in a different social, economic. Uh, I don't want to be around people who do this and that and the other. I, I just don't want to be around them. So I just want to kind of huddle with my Christian friends, and that way I'm happy, and, and I'm just around people like me. Well, a big problem is that's been the death of a lot of churches, is that attitude of, well, we'll just be around people like, like ourselves. And so they kind of huddle within their church, and there's no real outreach to other people. But we need to be careful, because here's the attitude of Simon. Simon saw that other woman as a prostitute. Jesus saw her as someone in need of his love and forgiveness. That's who we need to be. That's who we need to be. When we look at someone, rather than saying, I don't want to be around them, glad I'm not like them, we need to look at them as someone for whom Christ died and someone who needs the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ. And we're the ones that can show them that. Now, that was Simon's attitude. But the one I want us to really look at today is, is the woman's attitude. Because whereas Simon was not conscious of any sin in his life, the woman was only conscious of the sin in her life when she came to Jesus. She realized that she needed forgiveness. And she was so overwhelmed by being in the presence of the one who could offer her that that she responds in this extravagant way that we would consider scandalous. Not only today, but, but then as well. So how can we be like that woman? And you might say, well, I, hmm, it's interesting because I, I, I'm not a prostitute. Not literally, but metaphorically, maybe sometimes we sell our morals and our souls to some temptation or to some sin and we sell out sometimes on a daily basis so we need to be careful and maybe we don't do it in the literal sense but certainly in the spiritual sense we sometimes sell ourselves but what we need to remember from the woman here is the idea that all of us are in debt all of us are in debt now, it may not just be money, but certainly when, when this woman comes to Jesus and, and there's the idea that, that she's not a murderer and she's not a thief, but, but she's a prostitute. But there's a debt. There's a debt, and we all have a debt. And we can relate to that. We can relate to debt. All of us can in some form or another. But this woman had a debt and she acknowledged it. Why in the world do bill collectors and companies and utilities and all these other people, why do they send you bills? They want to remind you to whom you owe the money. It's pretty simple. They want to remind you. And the thing about being in debt that we need to realize is that we need a good memory if we're in debt because we need to remember to whom we are in debt and certainly 
when it comes to our salvation, we owe a great debt to God because he made it possible through the death and through the resurrection of his son. And he forgives us and redeems us. He paid the price, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. But what we need to realize is not just that we owe a debt, but also it's, it's a debt that we cannot repay. We can't repay it ourselves. You look at the lady in the story. She comes to Jesus and, and she cries and, and wipes his feet and, and she anoints him with, with oil and she, she kisses his feet and she goes through all of these things. And, and you might say, well, that's, a, that's an interesting way for her to pay God back. But you know what? She wasn't paying God back. What she was doing here is saying thank you in a very extravagant way, in the best way that maybe she knew how. Because you see, salvation is not a trade. Salvation is a gift. And this woman realizes that, that this is not something that, that I have the ability to pay back. I cannot do it. But I can certainly show my appreciation for this debt that has been paid for me that, that I cannot repay in the most extravagant way that I know how. This woman was forgiven not because of her acts, but rather because of her faith. And that's the way it is with us too. This gift that God offers us of, of forgiveness is certainly there for us to accept, but we can't buy it. We can't manufacture it on our own. It's only available through Christ. And how in the world do we show our thanks for it? Lots of different ways. There are a lot of different ways that we can say thank you. Notice here, it's not that we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. But we can certainly show our thanks by offering our own spiritual gifts and our, our talents in service to God. We can certainly show our thanks by the way that we joyfully and sacrificially give our tithes and our offerings to the work of the kingdom. We can certainly show our thanks by the way that we worship and pray or by the way that we go to work every day and that we honor God in the workplace. Also, that we can say thank you by the, by the way that we can rise up from maybe whatever dysfunction our family finds itself in to be transformed and renewed and made new, rather, by the love of Christ. And we can say thanks by showing other people a way to the faith. We can't pay it, but we can receive it, and we can say thanks for the extravagant gift. But the final thing, and, and this is one that, that you might hear and go, hmm, but forgiveness is never free. And I say, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. It, it, it's a gift. Didn't, didn't you just say it was free? No, no, the, the gift of salvation is free for us to receive. But forgiveness itself, even though it's available to everyone, isn't free. Because forgiveness costs somebody something. In this case, it was the agony of Gethsemane 
the pain and the suffering of the cross. In other words, pain and death and separation from God were the price that Jesus paid so that we can be forgiven. Think about it in your own life. You say, well, you know, it doesn't really cost me anything to forgive someone else. Of course it does. You go and forgive somebody that maybe has not asked for your forgiveness. It costs you something. It costs you your pride. That's what it costs you. You know, when you forgive somebody that you know may turn on you again. It costs you something. Forgiveness is never free. And certainly, in the case of our Lord, he paid for it with his very life so that we could be free, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a way back to God, so that we could become a part of God's family, so that we could have the power to live every day, so that we could spend eternity in heaven. The forgiveness that makes that possible was not free. It was paid for by Christ. So, what about you? Which one of these are you today? Are you Simon? Because I would say there's a little bit of Simon in all of us. A little more, a little less, maybe in some. Uh, are, are, are we, Simon, basically the idea that we're good enough, that there's no need in our life? There's no need of forgiveness. There's no need for, for Christ. I'm, I'm good enough on my own. Or are we like this woman, this prostitute, who was thankful beyond words? You notice in this story, she never spoke one word. One word, never. She was thankful beyond words. Because God knew her heart. It's that way with us today. God knows our heart. We may can hide things from other people, but we can't hide them from God. God knows our heart. We can put on our religious facade and, and, and look all, all great you know, on Sundays and everything, but God knows our heart. Or, you know, we can be someone that society just looks down on and judges because of our past. But God knows our heart. And God knows when we genuinely come to him and ask for forgiveness. So since God knows your heart and sees your heart, what's he seeing today? Let's pray.